Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his brilliant and philosophically charged new book, God, Science and Self, Muhammad Iqbal's Reconstruction of Religious Thought, Noman Faizi conducts a close and often dazzling reading of a towering yet difficult Muslim modernist text. Through a painstakingly intimate analysis of Muhammad Iqbal's discourse on wide-ranging themes including revelation, the self, knowledge and science, Fezi shows that Iqbal's thought houses in productive tension, representationalist and pragmatic registers of hermeneutics. Iqbal's hermeneutic often embodied the very objects of critique and dissatisfaction that he identified in the epistemological norms and patterns of Western colonial modernity. Fezi reads these markings and tensions not as a form of fatal contradiction, but rather as the necessary wounds carried by a panoramic thinker wrestling with the significance of religious knowledge and revelation in a world beset by the malaise of modernity. This stunningly erudite book, published in the exciting new series on modern Islamic thought by McGill Queen's University Press, should and will be read widely. Here now is my conversation with Professor Noman Fezi. Uh, thank you so much, Noman, for coming on the New Books Network. And uh, thank you so much for writing this really splendid um, and critically important uh, new book, uh, which, as I was saying before we press record, it will be uh, difficult to do justice to it uh, in the, uh, this time that we have together, but we'll try to um, you know, get into some of these aspects of this very multi-layered uh, text. But before we get to the text itself, uh, Noman, we have a tradition on the New Books Network that our first question is always biographical. So I was wondering if you could share a bit with our listeners about how you became a scholar of Islam. Uh, can you tell us a bit about your journey, uh, how you became a scholar? Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me here, Sherali, and I'm I'm very grateful um, uh, for for you know the fact that you've read the book and that we're about to talk about it. Um, in terms of my journey, so I have, uh, I, I mean, I've I've got like a narration of sorts that I use. Uh, with students when they ask about it. So I'm going to use a version of that. Um, So my initial plan really after doing my undergrad was to be a high school teacher and to do theater in Pakistan, in Lahore, where I'm from. But when I was doing my undergrad, I took some courses uh, where I was introduced to the thought of uh, Peter Oaks, who was eventually my dissertation advisor at the University of Virginia, where I was trained. uh, I came across the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam. I came across um, American pragmatism. And it's these three uh, sort of things that really uh, made me think about doing a PhD and teaching at the university level rather than the high school level. So that's like a succinct, gener- a succinct journey of sorts. But my initial plan was to teach high school sociology and uh, do theatrical productions in in Lahore, Pakistan. <laughs> well, in some ways, this is a philosophically theatrical uh, uh, book in the best sense of the word. So you're not far from it. Well, 
I, I thought I thought there's a way to introduce our listeners to this book, uh, which is uh, you know philosophically uh, very rich, uh, but also uh, uh, you know the kind of book that you have to read cover to cover to really get uh, uh, the uh, core arguments and the richness of the book across. But I thought I'll start with a broad question to sort of introduce our listeners to this, which is, um, and I'll actually start with the broadest argument of the book, which is uh, a way to read a thinker like Muhammad Iqbal from the colonial period in a manner that um, his, um, uh, the very the very object of his critique in some ways, the very epistemological norms and patterns that he's critiquing become a part of his thought as well. And you want to read this seeming contradiction or the seeming tension or um, uh, uh, in Iqbal's thought as a form of a mark, as a form of a, uh, uh, a wound of colonial modernity, if, if I were to paraphrase your argument. I want to start with that broad, broad sort of canvas before we get into the specifics. What kind of a reading of reconstruction uh, uh, are you doing? The, the famous text of Muhammad Iqbal, I should say, uh, reconstruction of religious thought. And, and talk to us about this larger argument of, of uh, this tension, this contradiction, but you see this as more than just a tension and contradiction, as productive as an analytical that, that's That sounds wonderful. Like I feel like, yeah, that is that is the broadest argument I want to make. And is it cool if we start if I if I make broad brushstroke claims in the beginning? Yeah. So so my it's like so the broadest case I'm trying to make is that thinkers who are working in an in a context where they imagine like things are falling apart that there are crises that the world is messed up my my broadest claim is that if they're going to try and fix that world some of what's wrong in that world is going to display itself in their thinking if they really are a part of that world <laughs> in other words if the world is messed up if if there is if there if if there are crises that you're surrounded by and you're trying to wrestle with them, the wounds of those battles, uh, the the way that you're wrestling with them are going to appear in your own thinking. And how are they going to appear in, the, your own, in your own thinking? They're going to appear as a repetition of what you see wrong with the world because you also belong to that world. I don't know if that like sort of summarizes my broad claim that if you are trying to repair a broken world, you're going to get broken as as part of the process because, yeah, you're part of it. Wonderful. So I thought maybe one way to begin our exploration of your reading of uh, Iqbal would be to talk about two key categories that come early on in the book and in some ways are the conceptual bedrock of the book in some ways. And perhaps you could introduce our listeners who may be unfamiliar uh, with these categories, uh, which is, of course, the, the two categories of representationalist and pragmatic. Uh, so t- tell us a bit about what these two categories mean and why are they so central to you, so important Absolutely. to you in terms so, of how you read it. So part. what I have described as representational or, or representationalism is a set, is a way, is, is, is four ways of thinking about knowledge that Iqbal is both critical of but re- and tries to fix and repair but in the process of trying to fix and repair also repeats. So let me let me just say that again in like differently. So representationalism for me represents what, uh, the epistemic problems with colonial modernity that Iqbal is wrestling with, that he's trying to fix, and in the process repeats as well. 
Now, what do I claim that representationalism consists of? I give it four features, uh, and and a summary of that would be that a representation in in the in this book, a representational approach towards knowledge is to imagine that the point of knowledge claims is to is to is to generate consistent, incorrigible descriptions about the world that are made from an unassailable position. In other words, knowledge is supposed to be descriptive. It's supposed to describe the world. Knowledge is supposed to be, if you're generating knowledge, you should ideally stand on an unassailable footing. Uh, Your claims should be consistent and they should be incorrigible. In other words, they should arrive at the, uh, they should accurately describe the essence of what you're trying to get at. So this for me is a way of thinking about knowledge that the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam criticizes heavily because it thinks that it's a it's it's not appropriate to uh, handling the way it's not appropriate to how we should think about religion how we should think about philosophy how we should we think about science and their interrelations so that's one half of it does that is, does that work uh, so on on the other hand what I've labeled or referred to uh, as the Reconstruction's pragmatism is Iqbal's attempt to to repair the problems with uh, thinking about knowledge as descriptive, foundational, binary, and essential. And the the way Iqbal practices his pragmatism, what I call pragmatism in this text, is that he thinks of knowledge claims as revisable, and the, the point of knowledge claims is to generate revisable and finite courses of action that help an individual or a community to resolve some problem that the community is wrestling with. Hence, hence the hence the hence the word pragmatism. So rather than producing descriptions, or rather the function of descriptions isn't to like accurately describe the world. But the point of descriptions is to help you navigate the environment that you're a part of. So descriptions, not of that, the point of descriptions would not be to mirror the world, but to help you generate some course of action. Um, similarly, your claims don't have to be unassailable; they have to be. They have to be revisable, and their warrants should be such that they can be debated and changed. Uh, thirdly, you don't have necessarily have to make self-consistent claims. There are environments and situations in which your claims, in order to be appropriate to that environment, can be vague, what I, what I, what I refer to as, as vague. There are vague environments. Uh, one example that I use often is to, like a bittersweet moment is a moment where a, making a self-consistent claim about it wouldn't do justice to it. And lastly, uh, Rather than describing the essences of, or rather rather than trying to get the at the essence of an object, you're trying to make a, a finite claim from some perspective for the sake of resolving some problem. So that's like a a, a three minute summary of <laughs> the way I handle these categories throughout the book. I hope that like if, the, if there's something that 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 should be clarified, I'd I'd, I'd be happy to like. Uh, no, that's wonderful. Thank you, Nomad. Uh, I thought, you know, um, before we get into the specific uh, uh, sort of themes and, and uh, chapters, uh, since, you know, our New Books Network has a really uh, 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 large audience by this point, which goes beyond just Islamic studies specialists, 
I was wondering if very briefly, you could just give uh, a very brief introduction to this text, uh, which uh, some people, of course, would be intimately familiar with, some may not. So how would you very briefly describe the reconstruction of religious thought? If you could just give a brief uh, introduction to that text before we get into specific Absolutely. Questions. So the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam is, uh, is, is Iqbal's... Uh, uh, Muhammad Iqbal, a major South Asian thinker, poet, politician, activist, philosophic thinker, who dies in 1938. Uh, the Reconstruction of Religious Thought is, is is considered to be his philosophic magnum opus. It was published in 1934. Um, it was initially a, a, a set of six lectures that Iqbal delivered on a, in a lecture tour throughout throughout India. And then, with the addition of one other chapter, it it was it was published in thirty four. And if I were to briefly describe the themes of the book or the ones that are most relevant to to my own work, is that this is Iqbal's sort of most detailed meditation on the relationship between religion, philosophy, and science in the context of colonial modernity. Uh, and then, more specifically, about the relationship between Islam. Uh, the, the claims of uh, modern scientific claims, uh, Einstein makes an appearance in the book, Kant makes an appearance in the book, uh, Hegel makes an appearance in the book. So how Western philosophy and science and the claims of classical and medieval Islamic uh, thought can be, can, can be thought of in commensurate terms. So that's the way I think of the reconstruction. Terrific. So before we get into Iqbal's uh, uh, sort of uh, pragmatic and representational uh, sort of uh, um, uh, themes in this in this in this text. You begin the book, however, the first substantive chapter is devoted to another major Muslim modernist thinker, perhaps the most uh, well known, as you put it in the book as well, uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan. Um, so, so tell us a bit about uh, well, a two part question. One is uh, why is Sayyid Ahmad Khan so important in terms of uh, charting the the genealogy of Muslim modernist thought? of which uh, Iqbal is a part. And what are the, some of the sort of ways in which uh, Sayyid Ahmad Khan's thought uh, informs or is seen um, uh, to also be preponderant in Iqbal's epistemology and his uh, philosophical thinking? Absolutely. Um, so for me, uh, the reason I, uh, I, admi- I, I, like, I rely on Sayyid Ahmad Khan's work and, and admire him really is because... Uh, as, as, as I read him, he is he is a very very consistent thinker uh, in terms of his epistemology, and uh, it's it's consistently representational. So he's 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 going to be making claims about religion, philosophy, and science, relying on uh, on on what I call a representationalist apology, uh, uh, representationalist epistemology. So that's why he's central to. Uh, for this project, because it gives my readers and me uh, um, representationalism being enacted without contradictions playing an important part. So he's a consistent thinker. Uh, He is consistently representational. And the reason he becomes important for Iqbal is because, uh, in, in a sense, this is the epistemological context that Iqbal is both inheriting and then trying to work through and repair. Um, the, the the book itself is is the the, the different chapters of the book. Uh, one of, one of the major places that where Iqbal delivered these lectures 
was Aligarh University. Uh, the book, it was written by Iqbal in English. It's self-consciously addressed to university student, Muslim, Muslim university students uh, specifically, and then university education, uh, university educated uh, sort of Indians more broadly. So that's why Sir Sayyid kind of looms large for me um in in uh, as as a as a way to explore the epistemological context in which Iqbal was operating so uh, let's now uh, think a bit about these two categories uh, in more specific ways uh, so i thought maybe rather than going chapter by chapter it might be perhaps more useful uh, for our listeners if you could speak a bit about what are the aspects of Iqbal's thought that you identify and that you analyze as uh, uh, representationalist and what is the kind of uh, uh, hermeneutic that he brings uh, to the fore when it comes to those uh, uh, questions uh, uh, to do with uh, the multiple you know categories that you engage in the course of the book from knowledge to science to questions of uh, the self and and and, and freedom uh, but 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 uh, it seems by by the, by the time I was done reading the book that your strategy is to identify different aspects that fall under the representationalist and then the pragmatic, but then also showing how they sit in productive tension with each other. It's not that one negates the other, which was a brilliant move that you made towards the end of the book. So anyway, so let's begin by talking about the aspects of his thought that are representationalist and what kind of hermeneutic that is, does he bring to those questions? Sure. But, uh, is, is it cool if I first describe his critique of some uh, of representationalism and then... Absolutely. That would, be, that, that would be terrific. So for instance, yeah. so... Uh, if, if you look at the, the, the first chapter on Iqbal, which I've titled Knowledge, Experience and Reality. So the way he is criticizing representationist epistemologies over here is that he's critical of thinking about religious claims or scientific claims or philosophic claims as simple descriptions of the world. Yeah, as if. Uh, a religious claim t- describes a certain thing in the world as X and a scientific claim describes it as Y or as not X and we have a contradiction and therefore they can't get along with each other. So his first intervention in thinking about religion is to tell us that it's not helpful to think about religion as describing things in the world. So religious claims aren't competing with claims made by physicists, for instance, right? And or, or, or claims made by psychologists. So if, if I were to summarize this, he criticizes uh, colonial ways of thinking about religion as, as like religious claims as superseded uh, descriptions of the physical world or superseded uh, descriptions of, uh, uh, of, 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 of our internal worlds, which some other discipline can make in a better way. So that's his criticism of of of, of thinking about religion in uh, as descriptive. Now, how does he end up repeating the same problem? Now, so if he's criticizing other, uh, other thinkers of of treating religion descriptively, how does he end up repeating this problem? Well, he goes goes ahead and says, "I'm going to offer you a vocabulary of thinking about religion generically." About about any and all possible ways of religion. Uh, uh, sorry, any and all uh, any and all possible religion. So he is critical of a particular vocabulary that tries to be overarching when thinking about religion, uh, 
But then he offers another overarching vocabulary. So, for instance, he says the category of revelation, the category of mysticism, uh, the category of God are, are, are germane to religion, right? So that, that ends up being reductive in relation to contexts where revelation, mysticism, or God may not be significant categories when thinking about religion. So is, does that give us an instance of where he is criticizing a particular problem, a way of thinking about religion in an overgeneral way as descriptive, but then offering his own descriptive mechanism as an overarching scheme of thinking about religion? Um, does that, does, that, does, that, does that help us think about the way he's being representational in relation to religion? Um, Absolutely. And we can come back to, of course, this theme uh, uh, also in respect to other questions. Now let's, uh, let's uh, talk about the other register, which, which I thought really interesting. I mean, I, in some ways, this book is, you know, is unlocking the, the puzzles of the reconstructions. And uh, with that, it's, of course, a massive service to the study of religion, uh, study of religion and science, Islamic studies, South Asian Islam, uh, it really gives us a hermeneutic of how to read not only the Reconstruction, but then other philosophical works like the Reconstruction uh, as well. That's in the some hope. Ways it is a, <laughs> That's the hope. <laughs> a hermeneutical manifesto in some ways. So let's talk about the other key register, the pragmatic. Uh, what kind of issues, what kind of themes does that register uh, uh, become uh, visible in? And again, in what ways does Iqbal... Uh, sort of mobilize this register in terms of thinking about these large categories of life. Yeah. So one one way in which this this becomes very clear is when Iqbal talks about physics and biology, right, in the Reconstruction. Uh, so he says that if you're looking at claims made by physicists or biologists in their respective settings, the point of their claims is to help them predict and control phenomena. And that's how those claims sort of become truth functional, which is to say that their whole function is simply to predict uh, and make sense of the specific things that they're analyzing. And the, 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 the claims don't have a life, in a sense, outside of those contexts. So that claims are for the sake of solving specific problems in finite contexts. That's one major way in which he's he's being pragmatic. Another major way in his be in which he, he he becomes pragmatic is when he's thinking about the human self or the human person. Now he says that our our claims about human persons should be justified and and made in a way that's appropriate to the specific lives that we are observing, and not all human life looks identical. So we our, our claims should be. Uh, our, our claims have to be made in relation to the audience that we address. So our claims about what it means to be human have to be specific to the audience, the human audience that we are addressing in our work. Uh, and that's what like cuts against thinking about human beings more generically or more broad, broadly as having natures and essences uh, that are independent of the, the specific humans that you're addressing. So that's two broad areas and region, areas in the book that areas in the reconstruction of religious thought where Iqbal is being consistently pragmatic when he's thinking about physics, when he's thinking about biology, and when he's thinking about uh, human persons. You know, one of the key master categories, of course, that you identify in the reconstruction that you also spend a lot of time analyzing is that of uh, Khudi, which, you know, variously translated as self, etc., 
Uh, I was. Uh, I think that that does deserve some specific attention uh, here. Um, so talk to, to us about that category and how it, it it appears, and also this 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 idea of a philosophical anthropology of the human that you talk about again in terms of what he finds limiting, what he what the kind of approaches to the human that he's critical of, then how he goes about in some ways uh, you know refurbishing and transforming a, a different notion of the human. Talk about that aspect of, of Iqbal's thought and how you analyze it in the book. Sure. Um, so uh, the word khudi, which uh, Iqbal like uses in his, his in his Persian and Urdu work as well, but he also uses it in English and you know variously uses the word such as words such as ego. Selfhood person. In fact, in the reconstruction, speaking of of, of master categories, in the reconstruction, in, in so many words, he, he goes and says that everything is an ego. So when he's when he's making claims about whether he's making claims about chairs or whether he's making claims about human beings or planets, that's the that's the sort of ultimate perspective that he offers. And in that sense, the word khudi is is a is a great way to explore the reconstruction because it both embodies Iqbal trying to offer a universalist sort of project of thinking about the world while simultaneously criticizing universalist projects of thinking about the world, right? So Iqbal will be critical of... Uh, of, of science being universalistic, of philosophy being universalistic, but then he'll be offering khudi or selfhood or the category of, of, of personhood as appropriate to thinking about any and everything. Um, that's one function that the term khudi plays in the reconstruction. The, the interesting thing in terms of its, its pragmatic side appears when Iqbal is, not, is, is thinking about a specific kind of person, i.e. the human person, rather than chairs as persons, trees as persons, planets as persons. That's when he ends up being uh, pragmatic. So the kind of warrants, for instance, I, I, uh, is, is it okay if I use a very specific example? Um, Anything you want. Okay. Please, please, please so when he's, when he, for instance, when he's trying to justify that human beings are free, right? Uh, he doesn't reduce freedom as like a, um, he doesn't give us an account of, of of human beings in a generic way and then says freedom is like a property of it. Instead, he it's he he does something like the following. He says that. Do you, my audience of the Reconstruction, make plans every day to, uh, I don't know, like to make breakfast and have breakfast? And the audience will say, yeah, we do. And are you able to then fulfill those plans? If you're able to fulfill those plans, then you have, you've got some warrant to use the word freedom in relation to yourselves, that you are free. Now, it is the case that not all plans that we make come to fruition. Uh, readers might retort. And that's when Iqbal will say, yeah, when I say that you're free, I'm making a claim that's probabilistic. I'm, I'm saying that you're, you're, you're free, like, let's say, whatever, you're able to fulfill, you're able to have breakfast every day, if you plan to have breakfast every day, seven out of 10 days. Now, readers might retort and say that, are you trying to say that I'm only free if like a majority of my plans come to come to fruition? And that's when the third way of talking about the human person that Iqbal employs comes through, that he's, he's, when he's describing human beings or when he's helping us think about human beings, he's making claims that his audience can relate to, 
He's making claims that are probabilistic, but then he's also making claims that he imagines should be aspirations that he has an, he and his audience should put into practice. In other words, when we're thinking about human beings, we're describing hopes and aspirations. We're, we're, we're dealing with hopes and aspirations and probability uh, and our audience rather than self-consistent uh, universalistic claims that are true of human beings in, in, independent of context. So that's why Khudi is such an interesting category in the reconstruction uh, because it exemplifies where he's repeating the problems that he finds in other thinkers, but then is also exemplifies how he's repairing the problems that he finds in others. The other, the other uh, key theme that I did want to um, talk about uh, in more specific ways was um, his understanding of revelation and uh, scriptural hermeneutics, as you as you describe it, and you and you you mentioned uh, especially towards the end of the book how one of the key concerns and anxieties that Iqbal has here is to show that the metaphysical architecture of Islam is also at par with that of other religious traditions like Christianity, Hinduism, etc. That kind of a caricature of Islam and its philosophical underpinnings is something that he wants to overcome and is very um, uh, anxious to overcome. Uh, so tell us a bit about his strategies of uh, 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 showing the, the, the significance and the meaningfulness of uh, revelation and of how uh, the Quranic revelation gets articulated in the body and person of the Prophet. Um, how does he go about showing the primacy and the importance and significance of these uh, uh, forms of religious knowledge uh, as important philosophical reservoirs of discourse. Okay, so uh, again, like uh, uh, both sides to it. So the 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 representational. So he reads scriptural uh, sort of claims, both representationally and pragmatically, as a way to figuring out their meaning. And as you said, one anxiety uh, operative in the text is is to show that the scriptural claims of uh, of Islam measure up to. Not just the canons of other religious traditions, but the canons of any given uh, discursive tradition, whether that's coming from like uh, Western science or Western philosophy or what have you. So I'm going to explore the pragmatic side first and then, and then go on to the representational side. So the oh, sorry, the representational side first and then the pragmatic one. So when he's pursuing a representational strategy, Iqbal reads verses of the Quran as if they are descriptions of the world. Uh, so the, the verse that, that's clearest in the reconstruction is when he's reading the light verse, you know, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. And then, so he, in order to figure out what this verse means, one of the things that he relies on is, uh, is, is his interpretation of a claim of a, of a, of a, of a claim of relativity, relativity physics, which is that light is the only absolute in the universe. So he's got the claim that light is the only absolute in the universe, and then he's got the clay, uh, which he gets from relativity physics, and then he reads a scriptural verse, which is the God is the light of the heavens of the uh, of, uh, of the heavens and the earth, and then he transposes one claim over the other to say that God is the uh, uh, God is the only absolute in the world, right? Now, when he does that, he comes into irretrievable and uh, sort of un. Uh, apparatic competition with any other readings of this verse, which may not read uh, the word light or nur as meaning absoluteness. And there are other sort of classical and medieval commentators on the on the light verse that haven't read uh, the light verse this way. You know, 
uh, Noor has been read as a guiding light, as um, as as a path, and and other such things. So when he is being uh, representational, he's re, uh, in relation to the scriptural resources of Islam. He's trying to say that the way the Quran describes the world and the way that modern physics might describe the world are either identical or self-consistent. Now, when he's being pragmatic in relation to the scriptural resources of Islam, he's reading scriptural verses, not as descriptions of the world, but as, 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 uh, as a resource for, uh, for Muslims to be able to address different problematic situations and issues in their contexts. Um, so that the meaningfulness of a verse is displayed in the life of one who reads and lives in relation to that verse, rather than the verse's capacity to secure an accurate description of the world. Is that is that, is that does that sound too too fancy, like or too abstract? No, no, absolutely. That's that appropriate to where where in the, the pragmatic side. The, ver- the verse's meaning is displayed in the lives of those who are engaged with and related uh, and relate with that verse and various commentaries on it. And then the representational side, it's, it's simply meant to describe the world. Um, and, and, and both strategies by Iqbal are used as a way to secure the meaningfulness of revelation, right? And in the, the, the representational strategy does so by superimposing the claims from some from uh, from some other environment onto the verses of the Quran, and the pragmatic side does it by saying that you ought to observe living, breathing Muslims to figure out what the meaning of the verses of the Quran are. One other one other key aspect of the book that we haven't had perhaps a chance to discuss um, explicitly yet that I do want to with you is. Uh, the contribution it makes to this whole uh, discourse on religion and science and the importance of knowledge there. Um, I'm coming back to one of the earlier chapters now in which you show that it's really how Iqbal conceptualizes knowledge that informs the way he thinks about the relationship between religion and science. Tell us about that argument. Sure. Um, So uh, what I've picked out are are three categories that that are... that are all over the reconstruction, uh, but Iqbal doesn't take the time to define them specifically at, at, at any given instance. So I've collected various instances of their uh, of the way they've been employed and then try to give a broad sense of the way they function, which categories are the categories of knowledge, experience, and reality. And my claim is that uh, for Iqbal, these three categories work in tandem, and that it doesn't make sense to think about uh, knowledge as a, as, a, as a freestanding entity or experience as a freestanding entity or reality as a freestanding entity, that when you make a knowledge claim, uh, you, you've already imp- you're already thinking about some domain or some aspect of human experience, and you're already making some claim about, about reality. Um, so I, I parse these out as a three-part, uh, that Iqbal, Iqbal's approach to knowledge as, is a three-part relation that involves uh, knowers uh, in some domain of human experience and relates them with with some aspect of of reality, um, and 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 then this this displays itself variously in the way he thinks about religion as exploring a very specific kind of human experience, 
uh, as as biology exploring another kind of human experience, as psychology exploring another kind of human experience, and so on. So it's really in in my reading, it's Iqbal's way of contextualizing knowledge claims so that they never become generic, so that you can't make claims on behalf of human experience as such. Uh, on behalf of human reason as such, so that knowledge producers must mark their claims, uh, tie their claims with the specific quote-unquote experiences or the specific set of problems that they are making clear their claims in relation to. And I, and I think this is, this, this is uh, a very important aspect of the reconstruction's pragmatic side of, of a way of making knowledge claims finite and responsive to specific problems. Um, now, as, as a way to close our discussion, I want to talk about the, uh, the underlying sort of larger argument that you make, uh, which really comes um, across, especially towards the end, uh, the conclusion that you call productive tensions. So tell us a bit about and this is, of course, something we've talked about already, but to spell it out further, w- w- tell us about the relationship between these two registers, the pragmatic and the representationalist. Um, how do you read this as a productive form of tension, but not necessarily one that cancels the other or in this kind of an empiricist way? Tell us a bit about the relationship between these two registers and what is the larger sort of hermeneutical point that you want to convey to your readers uh, and to our listeners here um, through the kind of... Um, analysis you've done in this book. Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, I'm going to try to answer this in like a multi-part way. The, the first thing that, the first hermeneutical point I want to make is that uh, claim, uh, the, the texts of modern Islamic thought or modernist Islamic thought, uh, if they contain contradictions, tensions, and apparatus, one hermeneutical sort of uh, suggestion I want to make is that uh, we as scholars should explore whether those tensions and apparatus are partly a function of uh, those those uh, modern Islamic thinkers repeating, so criticizing, repeating, and correcting the problems that they are wrestling with. So that's that's one claim I want to make. The second claim I want to make is that uh, we ought to pay attention to the way that whatever modern Islamic thinkers are trying to criticize. In, in this book, I've uh, offered like four, four avenues, knowledge as descriptive, foundational, binary, and essential, to pay attention to how they modify descriptive claims into something else, foundational claims into something else, binary claims into something else, essential claims into something else. So rather than looking at their criticism as simply a denial of what they are criticizing, to read it as their attempt to transform what they are criticizing. So I argue, for instance, that uh, when Iqbal's being critical of descriptions, the point isn't that you get rid of all descriptions. The point is that you think of descriptions as a way to uh, organize uh, methodological inquiry rather than as a way of mirroring what's out there in the world. Similarly, when, when when, when Iqbal's criticizing binary claims, the the point isn't that you get rid of all sorts of either or claims. The point is to introduce uh, in our in our intellectual toolkit the idea that there are some situations in which either or claims don't uh, are aren't uh, aren't well suited to analyzing. So that's the second claim I want to make that 
we when we when we come across contradiction and tension in the work of modern Islamic thinkers, we see it as a sign, as a mark of them trying to transform what they are criticizing rather than simply deny or denounce what they're criticizing. So those two registers. Uh, to see contradiction as a as a rep, as a criticism, repetition, and repair of a problem, and to see contradiction as a mark of transforming what a thinker finds as problematic rather than rejecting it. So as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, uh, Numan, uh, would you uh, uh, please share a bit with our listeners what you're thinking of as your possible next uh, project? Absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, there, there, are, there are two things that I'm, I'm fascinated by, by right now. One is uh, the, the idea of, of nature in, in Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan's corpus. So I, I do find that you know, a lot has been written about Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan in terms of what he has to say about religion and what he has to say about science. But the, the way he thinks about nature, Fitra, I think, is, is way more complex than the way it's been received. That's my, that's my view. I could be, if, as I start working on this, I could be wrong about this, but I do feel that his notion of nature is more complex than has been received in his and than him as being as a quote unquote naturalist. The second thing that I'm I'm really interested in is exploring the what what I'm beginning to label as intellectual conversion. Uh, early 20th century South Asian Muslim thinkers who are thinking about what it means for them to be Muslims. I have here in mind uh, someone like Abdul Majid Daryabadi, who has a whole account of his his various relations with and and um, uh, with with Islam. So I'm, I'm interested in thinking about conversion and and nature in the work of early 20th century South Asian Muslim thinkers. But these are just like dream. Uh, I'm at the stage of dreaming this. Uh, if there are listeners who are thinking about this, who would love, who would like to collaborate, I'd I'd absolutely love to do that. God, Science and Self, Muhammad Iqbal's Reconstruction of Religious Thought by Professor Noman Fezi, published by McGill Queens University Press in 2021. Thank you uh, so much, Noman, for your uh, uh, generosity of your time, for these really uh, lucid um, uh, reflections on your equally lucid and wonderful book. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really, really appreciate this. So this was my conversation with Professor Noman Fezi about his wonderful new book. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will also join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network among the finest and most widely uh, accessed academic podcasts in the world today. Until next time, this is your host, Shir Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and keep listening to new books in Islamic studies. Bye.